Welcome back to the Connected Podcast. I am your host, Rudy J. Today, I am joined by naturopathic doctor, Sarah Golding. Sarah is an experienced ND in Ottawa, Ontario, with a background in neuroscience. She searches for root cause origins of health concerns to help treat her patients and believes naturopathic remedies give us tools to gently uproot the sources of ailments, while creating balance and a return to wellness. She's co-owner of Sante Health Beachwood, which is a clinic with a comprehensive approach to health and treatment. She's a mother of two, a yogi, a runner, and believes that by understanding the why, patients are empowered to achieve optimal health. So I've been working with Sarah for about a year and a half now, maybe even a little bit longer on all of my health needs, my concerns. And she has been such an invaluable source. So she really does love her data. So understanding my numbers, we've done testing, we have treated deficiencies, but she's just been a really great resource to help me make sense of what might be going amiss or awry in my own health. And honestly, there is a lot of information out there, a lot of exceptional information out there. There are a lot of professionals whose opinions we can seek, right? And I wanted to bring Sarah on the podcast today to specifically talk about women, our hormones, how we can manage our stress, how we can support ourselves day to day. And she has a really great way of just breaking things down. More her more science background kind of comes out. She lays things out in a really digestible way, but also a really like tangible way, if that makes sense. So everything she prescribes and offers, again, it does draw back to the root cause, but she has her reasons for it all. So it's not for lack of a better word, it's not wishy-washy, it's not random. It is very kind of science-based, fact-based, but she also has a really lovely way of supporting. I mean, I can only speak for myself as a patient, but she has a really lovely way of supporting um my interpretations of what might be going on in my body and she doesn't really rule anything out, which I love. And I'm rambling a little bit, but this conversation is excellent for women in particular. If you are wanting to understand your hormones a little bit better, if you want to hear about the role hormones play in our overall health, if you're frustrated with this system, if you are frustrated with overwhelm and not sure where to start, we offer some tips in terms of food, right? Diet, stress management, and yeah, it's a really well-rounded conversation. So if you are enjoying this, please leave a rating, a review, share it. These are all ways that you can help grow the platform. And Sarah also offers a free resource and I'll link that up just below the episode. So if you want to reach out to her, if you want to reach out to myself, that is all there for you too. Okay. My brain is a little fried today. Can you tell? Well, let's jump into this conversation with Sarah. Enjoy the episode, you guys. All right. So Sarah, welcome to the podcast. So happy to have you on today. How are you? Great. Thanks so much. So let's jump in here. You have some pretty impressive credentials and experiences to your name maybe could you share your journey with naturopathic medicine and what inspired you to towards this journey? 
Okay, well, I think that um, my undergrad is in neuroscience, so I did a, a double major in neuroscience and biology. I think I've always had a keen curiosity about the body, um, but and, and kind of all the people in my class were pre-med students, right? Like almost everybody ended up in some kind of med school stream. Um, but I felt at the time, if I was going to see a family doctor or walk-in clinic, uh, it just wasn't the right answer, right? Like it just seemed like any concerns were um, addressed, but even if they were addressed, it was like a, a superficial level. And there, there was no answer to the why this would be happening or any kind of root cause investigation and really not a lot of curiosity. So it just didn't seem like the right path for me. And then in the end, I found this naturopathic school and it had, you know, it was pretty legit. It was four years also of school after an undergrad and, you know, had all the same courses, pharmacology, anatomy, all of that stuff. So it made sense for me. And I kind of just started going before I really knew too much about naturopathic medicine, to be honest. Um, but I think that was the right choice because my life now in terms of a practitioner is very balanced, right? I can choose the hours I work. I get to work one-on-one -on -one with patients, learn so much about them. And I have really great times with them. You know, like at the end of my workday, I don't feel drained. I feel like I was able to spend some good time really investigating really interesting cases. So that's great. And the content is really interesting. You know, like you, you get to be curious and you, I have the, the liberty of time that I can take the time to really dig down deep within the visit with the patient, but also research afterwards. And I feel like the way it's set up right now is in Ontario anyways, family doctors just don't have the time. They don't have the liberty to do extra research and extra work. So it's not necessarily even a conventional versus natural medicine for us here anyways in Ontario. It's often that I just have the liberty of time and I can, I can do the research that's available to all of us, but not all practitioners can actually access. Mm. And looking back, do you ever feel like you wish you would have done more traditional medicine route or are you pretty content? Okay. And why do you think it? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> sorry to interrupt. Uh, just, I feel like the, there's no deep dive, right? Mm. So it would be very formulaic, you know, a patient presents with this concern and you kind of have a standard of care where you're you're expected to offer A, B, and C. And if you work outside of that, then it has to be really well justified and all of that. Um, and, and there is a huge lag between research and clinical application of things. And again, this, this is because um, clinicians are super busy. So I just feel that um, not only can I dig deeper because of the treatment model. But I do believe that the body is very powerful. And I do feel that we have evolved in a really specific way and are very competent creatures biologically. And if we can properly identify the obstacles and eliminate them, the body can sort it out, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's often not that there's a quote unquote problem with the body. It's that there's a, an obstacle. And as long as we have the tools to assess that and have the, you know, power and the will to eliminate that obstacle, then um, nature kind of sorts it out. Mm -hmm. And 
what might you say to the person listening who is a little bit apprehensive to go maybe, let's just use the word non-traditional route in terms of medicine? Why do we still feel like we need the traditional route and like there's resistance between natural like even supplementation and you're very science research based, like where do you think that disconnect is and that apprehension comes from? Well, I, I do think that the more people on your team, the better, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a matter of choosing a naturopath over choosing a family doctor. I think if you're lucky enough to have a family doctor, that's wonderful and you should definitely keep them. And in a dream scenario, the, the family doctor is open to working with the naturopath, not directly, usually you always work through the patient because uh, again, there's no time for that. Um, but I think all of these specialists even that you get referred to, we are all separate sources of information. Like we are instructing you on our opinion of what to do based on various knowledge sets. And you as the patient are the, um, you're like the team lead, right? You get to decide what works for you, what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And you're also the one that's accumulated the most wisdom and knowledge about the subject, right? About your own body. So you might get some information from one pack practitioner that doesn't really fit. And then you get a couple other pieces from a couple other practitioners and those weave together and make a lot of sense. So that's your path forward. Mm, I like that. So it's not necessarily about picking one over the other. It's about how can we make this more integrative and work together? Yeah, definitely. And there's always this aspect of if you have the fundamentals of health locked down, uh, you're just more likely to A, not get disease and B, heal better from things. So if you have identified what your healthy diet is, and that's including all of the right nutrients and uh, excluding all of the quote unquote bad foods for you. And if you're able to manage stress or avoid stress, and if your sleep is good, and if you're moving your body, like you're, you're much better set up for success. And mm. I think um, one of the differences between the naturopathic model and the more conventional model is there's more of a, a preventative approach. So it's more that what can we do to keep this body on the right path versus the conventional approach is more um, addressing a rolling number of symptoms, I find. So, you know, if symptom A comes up, that's no problem. We have a medication for that. And you that might not even suppress the symptom. It may totally resolve that symptom. But without the investigation of what actually caused that underneath, something else is going to pop up, right? It, it's not over at that point. And can you break down some of the common struggles or ailments that you see treating women specifically? There are many, so it's <laughs> a big question. Um, menstrual stuff for sure, right? Like a lot of PMS symptoms are what people are concerned about, uh, heavy, painful periods, definitely. A lot of people who come in with uh, some kind of loose PCOS diagnosis, and that may or may not be the case. So that's a more uh, in-depth discussion about what PCOS actually is. Um, so that's kind of uh, one portion of it. But then there's the regular medical stuff that's not specific to women necessarily, but would be closer to like thyroid concerns, low energy, low libido, hair loss, um, migraines, 
all of the things, right? People sometimes present with 10 different concerns and we have to really try to um, map that because it's not that they have 10 different concerns. It's there's one, maybe two things off and, and they're, that imbalance is being manifested in those 10 different ways. So um, does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. And I'd like if we could dive a little deeper and stick on the the issues with women experiencing, you know, dysregular um, menstrual cycles. I know this is a very a, a very broad topic, and there are a lot of factors there. But maybe if we could use that as an example of how you and perhaps your colleagues would begin to address some of those concerns for a woman. Yeah. Okay. So um, the way I practice is the more data I can get, the more precise the plan can be. And Mm -hmm. it's the patient that guides the process, right? So if the patient is willing to do a bunch of lab testing, that's great. You know, it makes my job so much easier if we if we have all of the information, of course, we're much more likely to get to the root cause. So if they're willing to do complicated lab testing and if it's appropriate to do so, then that's where I would like to start. Um, and some people are not willing and it could be because financially they can't afford to do the testing and some testing is $3 and some testing is $400. So it is a factor. And so for the patients where we can't get a lot of extra data, then we will have to do more of a trial and error approach. And because we're using gentle therapies, we're able to do that. It's not like we're throwing very intense medications just willy-nilly. We'll, we'll be able to run through things. It'll just take a lot longer to figure out. So in my dream scenario, where they've done the lab testing um, to kind of shortcut to the root cause, then we'll look at the hormones for sure. And we'll have to possibly look at their nutrients. It really depends. I get a lot of women to do a nutrient calculator, basically. And so if it looks like their diet's really nutrient deficient, then probably we'll run some labs to confirm that. And then once we have those test results, then um, we pair that with their symptoms, obviously, right? So when we do the intake, if we see that they're having a bunch of symptoms of uh, PMS or if they're having spotting before their period or breast tenderness or mood changes or anything like that, um, it might show that they're having more of a progesterone deficiency or a relative estrogen excess or something like that. Um, Like if they have that paired with heavy painful periods and it's more likely to be an estrogen dominance picture. And if that's the case, and if it's confirmed on lab testing, then that's what we do. We just start to help the liver to clear that excess estrogen because the liver, amongst all of the other wonderful things that it does, the liver is by far my favorite organ, Mm -hmm. um, it helps to clear hormones, right? So So it might not be an issue of them making too much of a hormone or getting too much of this hormone through their diet or wherever else. It might just be that their filter is clogged up and they're not doing a great job of of cleaning the blood out, basically. So we'll work on doing that. And then the other part is helping keep that progesterone level nice and robust. And um, one of the biggest obstacles for having that healthy ratio of estrogen and progesterone is that progesterone looks very similar to cortisol. So Mm -hmm. in a woman's body, if their adrenal glands have been having to 
overperformed for a long time, have been, you know, responding to a chronic stress situation, then we will, you know, the will run out of fuel, basically. The adrenal glands aren't magical fairies, they are factories. And if they run out of ingredients to make the cortisol to stress out, then they're gonna look for an alternate source. And in a woman's body, progesterone is that alternate source. It's the same type of molecule, they just have to make one little modification to it and it converts to cortisol and then they pump it out. So they continue to stress out. And really stress is the most important reaction we have, right? We will not survive that car almost hitting us or the saber-toothed tiger chasing us without that stress response. So the adrenal glands are able to poach from all of their systems when needed. And the stress response is really supposed to be acute and short, right? Like we should not be living Mm -hmm. in an an environment where there are saber-toothed tigers all the time. We would move at some point. Um, Mm. But what we see now is we're in jobs that are stressful for 365 days a year, or we're in relationships that are challenging. So this acute phase reaction that we're supposed to be having is now chronic, and we just don't have the juice to maintain it. So we have to rebalance. We will survive. So we will rebalance by poaching from other systems, including from the reproductive system. So part of this rebalancing of estrogen and progesterone is making sure that the stress system is supported. And that might be just throwing the ingredients at the adrenal glands so that they're able to just keep stressing out. And then the other part of that is modulating the stress response. So that could be using herbs, that could be eliminating physical stressors, including through the diet. It could be going to therapy and finding tools to reframe the stressor, or it could be, you know, quitting that job or leaving that relationship. So whatever has to happen to keep that stress system kind of isolated and uh, well-maintained on its own really helps the female hormone pattern. I love that. So, so much valuable information there. Can we break down the women's hormone system and maybe how it should be like optimally functioning versus becoming more dysregulated by things like you're saying, stress? Yeah, so um, let's just describe it um, step by step. So basically, um, a healthy menstrual cycle, and everybody's different, right? There are nuances to this, but most people who follow what I'm about to describe are pretty low symptom or symptom-free. So um, usually the menstrual cycle, so from day one of one period to day one of the next, is about 28 days. And then there are five so four to six days of flow. And the menstrual flow is not too heavy, you know, um, no no major gushing, no major blood loss, because any blood that you lose, you have to replace that. So um, in a way, the lower the blood volume, the better, but too low can also represent low hormones. Um, and there's not too much pain with your menstrual flow and no major PMS symptoms. That's That's the goal that we're all striving towards. And so what happens, we're born with all the eggs we're ever going to have. And at the beginning of the cycle, follicle stimulating hormone released from the pituitary gland in the brain uh, stimulates a couple of these, but let's just say one of these follicles to develop. And as it develops, it's pumping out estrogen. 
and estrogen rises and rises and rises. And once it hits a critically high point, usually around day 14 of the cycle, 12, 13, 14, then that triggers the brain to then release luteinizing hormone. And luteinizing hormone causes that rupture of the follicle. So the egg that's within the follicle is then released and then goes on to the fallopian tube down to the uterus. Uh, but once that follicle has been emptied of the egg, it involutes, changes its cells a little bit and starts making progesterone. So that's why the first couple of weeks of the cycle are said to be estrogen dominant and then progesterone really ramps up for the second two weeks. Doesn't mean that estrogen drops off entirely, but it's an, a progesterone dominant situation usually. And then um, if after two weeks, there's been no signal from the uterus that um, a fertilization has occurred, so there's been no conception, then the that little follicle, which has turned into a corpus luteum, it's called, says, okay, doesn't look like we're pregnant. Let's restart the cycle. So the follicle stops working, progesterone and estrogen drop, and that's what triggers the period to start. So anything that it throws that out of whack. So for example, if estrogen were, was low and it took more than two weeks to ovulate, then that would delay the cycle. And you would have, you know, instead of a 28-day cycle, it might be a 32 or a 36-day cycle. Um, or maybe, um, even if ovulation occurs, maybe the amount of progesterone being secreted from that corpus luteum isn't adequate. So it's causing these um, hypo, so these low uh, progesterone symptoms. So um, anything that we can do to encourage that ovary to keep pumping out the progesterone for that allotted, you know, two weeks of time. Um, is ideal. And a lot of this stuff can be done through the diet. Not everything, you know, it depends on the situation. But I feel like many of us discount the power of being properly fueled. And something I'm even learning more about now is how important protein is for women. And it's not just the regular amount of protein that we're thinking about, but it's very high protein levels from, you know, from my previous understanding. And part of the reason that this is important is because in our high hormone phase, so in our luteal phase, the two weeks before our period comes, um, we have a really hard time accessing our glycogen, so our intermediate fuel. And I think that this is what's contributing to a lot of PMS symptoms. So, you know, mood, I'm calling it now PMS hangriness, um, mood <laughs> stuff and uh, energy. A lot of people are tired before their period. So I think that has to do with just straight up fuel sources. And what happens is when we can't access that fuel, again, we'll survive, our bodies will get fuel, but one of the sources that they get it from is our muscles. So they'll convert uh, protein in the muscle to glucose eventually. Um, and so that's causing us to break down our muscle. And so we have a harder time putting on muscle mass. And the more muscle mass we have, the more balanced our testosterone levels are, usually the more stamina we have and other things. So um, really focusing on the diet is very, very powerful. Can you give a few examples of how we can support our cycles through diet and maybe a few, um, maybe a few cues or signals for someone listening who, whose cycle may be out of whack, like cravings or like what, I feel like there's, there's so much that is now just considered normal. Like you're saying like, Oh, I just have these crazy, they have these crazy cravings or I get really tired or yeah, I just can't do that when I'm on my period or whatever it is. And I feel like we're just kind of accepting that at this point, but in your opinion, in your experience, 
How can we support our cycle? And then what are some cues that maybe we're going off track a little bit? Um, so I would say focus, like if you can figure out what your ideal diet is, that's really what your baseline should be. And we can really Mm. consider the first two weeks of our cycle or the first phase, depending on how long the whole cycle is, but, um, we can consider that our normal, right. And then the high hormone phase is more like, um, a different beast in and of itself. So if you can figure out what your healthy diet is, that's just what you eat for the first two weeks of your cycle. And then in the second two weeks, that's when you really need to focus on protein. So if normally, based on your body weight and exercise and all of that, if normally you're eating 100 grams of protein a day, you really need to go up to 120, 130, 140. And you, you know, we would do a calculation of this to give you some exact numbers. But protein is huge for that time. Mm-hmm. And also... Um, water regulation goes off too. So our body stores water in different ways. And, and in a way we're holding on to more water than we normally are, but in another way, it's actually less accessible to some of our functional tissues, like our muscles than it should be. So what we see in athletes is we underperform at that time and have poor, um, heat tolerance and all of that. And all of these things can be managed if we're aware of it and we're doing, um, high leucine proteins before and after exercise, like branched chain amino acids and things like that. Um, but focusing on that part to fuel you is good. But I also think it's important to add in lots of cruciferous veggies like broccoli, cauliflower, kale, all of that stuff um, in the second week of your cycle as well, because that's going to help clear out those high hormone levels. And we don't want to crush the hormone levels. Like, you know, there's a reason that there's this regular cycle that happens. We just want to make sure that the amount that's been secreted has been properly cleared as it's supposed to. Like we want to support the liver function as much as we can. So those are the things that I would suggest. And then depending on on their particular symptoms, then you treat those specifically. So some women have insomnia before their periods, for example. So they need more things to settle down their frayed nervous system. Um, And other women have breast tenderness and there's certain herbs for that or certain teas or other things that you can do. So it really depends on the individual. And that's the whole thing about naturopathic medicine is you treat the individual. It's very much um, a curated style of care based on what's presenting in that day. It's not like there's a cookie cutter. Oh, you have PCOS. This is your plan. So, um, it it depends. It's always the answer. And do you, are there any like resources or books or anything that you might recommend someone listening? They could start with just to get more information or would you recommend, um, an ND appointment to kind of dive a little deeper? Where would, where would, could someone start? Yeah, so um, we have a free ebook that we're just kind of launching now. I need to make that live, but we have an ebook about eating for your cycle. So that would be a good place to start. And also, my naturopathic intern, she's created an estrogen reboot program. So if the person feels that they have signs of estrogen dominance, that would be a nice thing to do as well. But there's lots of researchers out there that are, and clinicians who are pretty knowledgeable about this. Um, I think Jolene. Brighton is a clinician, Stacey Sims. If you're an athlete of any kind, I think it's worth looking into Stacey Sims because she's really done a good job of putting the data together about how we're using energy at different times in our cycle. Um, but of course, just seeing a naturopath. And and I can't emphasize enough, even if you see a naturopath for two visits, you will get a lot from that. It's almost mm-hmm. like you don't have to think of it as committing to 
uh, a long-term relationship with a healthcare provider, you can see it as you're subcontracting a health researcher. And if you can give them two visits of your time, then they'll be able to do a really thorough intake, do the labs that are needed to be done, and figure out what's going on. And then it's up to you to run with the ball to see what you're going to do about that. They'll create a plan, um, but it's it's the patient that does the work, right? The naturopath's really just the organizer of everything. Mm. And just for my own experience, especially, there is so, so much value. Like there are so many resources for pelvic floor, for traditional medicine, for a pap test, fertility. Like there are a lot of specialized clinics and, you know, trained physicians. I find that it can become very overwhelming to think about, okay, where, like, where do I start? I don't even know what my cycle is. Am I on birth control? Am I not? Do I need to see a doctor? Do I need to get imaging done? Do I need to see a specialist? Like it can honestly become so overwhelming. And I, I wanted to ask where, again, I mean, I guess it's the same question, but in all of that, for the listener who is maybe overwhelmed or is like, well, I tried that. I did that. That didn't really seem to work. Like, are there a few options or avenues or types of treatment that you might recommend over others, like to, to start with or to try again, or. It's hard not to say it depends again. So, Mm -hmm. um, some people have really great family doctors and they've been getting really great care and their cycles are regular. They have no obvious health concerns and they don't necessarily need to dig deeper. There's not necessarily a, a quote unquote problem with everybody that needs to be sorted out, right? So if they're feeling good and they they are adhering to a proper diet, movement, sleep, all of that stuff, then that's great. If they have a particular concern, it's really about who they're most comfortable with and who can do a proper assessment. So again, if it's their family doctor um, or their naturopath, whomever, somebody that will do a full intake and really listen to the full story. Um, Because sometimes, even though it might seem that, you know, one part of their day is random and the symptoms that they have at that time do not relate to anything else. They definitely do. Like the whole body is connected, right? We don't have separate areas that do separate things. Everything is interconnected. So having that proper intake is great. It doesn't really matter who it's done by. Depending on what center they're in, what city they're in, they might have access to a functional uh, medical doctor. And that's a great resource because they have that whole root cause approach and have access to, you know, greater lab testing, which would be great. Um, But really, um, it depends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And so I think, I think that, I don't know, I don't really have a better answer. Can you ask it to me in a different way? <laughs> yes, I can. Um, let's say, okay, so are there things that the average woman who is maybe frustrated and just feels like there's too much out there, what would be like the ABCs? So you said diet already, you've kind of covered that. So maybe like, okay, I would prioritize these three things over everything else. And that may be seeing a doctor that may be, you know, changing your exercise or that may be like, whatever it is, let's there's like some tips, some strategies or some, um, specific 
<laughs> like modalities you would recommend over others? Because I think it's really easy to be like, okay, I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to do that. Then I'm going to see that person. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I would say that if I had to choose three things, one would definitely be the diet, right? Doing the work to figure out what diet works for you. And a lot of that is trial and error. So you don't need to do that supervised by anybody necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, The second one is really prioritizing sleep because sleep, I believe to be the most, this diet is very important too, but you know, let's say (laughs) top important thing, because that's the only time of day that you're really pumping out a ton of growth hormone and healing your cells and repairing and regulating your circadian rhythm and all of that. So if diet's good and sleep is good, that's an awesome starting point, of course, movement and all of those things. But really the third thing is I do, again, I'm biased, right? I I come from a science background. I want to see the numbers. So doing some blood work, I think is very important because even if somebody has a really great diet, maybe they're not absorbing those nutrients as they should be. So every now and then, like once every three years, even it doesn't have to be on a super regular basis, but checking your B12, checking your iron, especially as a woman, these are, again, every time you have a period, you're losing a bunch of resources and it's not just iron that's being lost. So checking that vitamin D levels are always low. I've tested hundreds of people in the Ottawa area. Everybody's low. So that's almost guaranteed for that. Um, and you know, it's great to have a look at your liver enzymes and other things as well. And, and beyond that maybe testing your hormones, but that would be, I'd say next level testing. And I think just getting the basics is really, really valuable. Can we stay on that for, for a little bit longer? So testing, um, yeah. Like what would you recommend test wise to see those numbers? What would be kind of, yeah, what would be. I don't want to say a waste of time, but it's like, what are some things we should be looking for testing? Okay. So the things that we often see um, in blood work, very common to see a B12 deficiency. And in Ontario labs, they're saying sufficient is anything over 220, but really we see people symptomatic below 500. So getting B12 up if it's not already and vitamin D definitely like I always say that supplements are temporary, except for vitamin D, if you're going to be living in Canada, and um, omega-3, unless you're going to you know, live by the ocean and eat fish at least four times a week. Um, so definitely taking vitamin D, and even better would be to test so you know exactly what dose you're supposed to be taking. And it's usually way higher than what people are taking. Um, and then the other thing we see a lot is iron. So I think iron is the most common nutrient deficiency, uh, not just of my practice, but generally and uh, normal range for that depends on your lab, but the normal reference range for us is 11 to 109. And so that's a pretty big reference range and optimal is usually between 50 and 80. So you don't rule out iron deficiency as a cause of hair loss, for example, until the the ferritin is at 50. But most menstruating females are around 30. And a lot of people are floating below that. So identifying that and treating that would be good. And treating it doesn't mean you have to take a supplement. You could probably be doing that through your diet and improving nutrient absorption and food combining and all of that stuff. And um, I also like to run a full iron panel, not just a ferritin, just to see exactly how the body is utilizing the iron and iron's not just a you know a little thing that might be helpful it's really integral to carrying oxygen to your tissues you know that's a huge deal so if anybody's having any symptoms of fatigue or insomnia or anything like that like you you have to check 
iron. It's a, it's a really important thing for women's health. And then when we do diet assessments, we see everyone's low in protein. That's like, just mm. seems to be what it is. It's kind of a part-time job to make sure you're getting all of your protein in. So making <laughs> sure that that's up is another one. Um, and then beyond that, there's more complicated stuff to test for, but if you even get those ones out of the way, it, it really makes a huge difference. Like even just improving somebody's vitamin D, like really changes their day to day. And maybe what are some signals that we could use as metrics that maybe our, our health is improving? Like, like you're saying vitamin D and iron, like maybe you, you've had clients or patients who've been like, Oh, I was feeling a little tired. And now I feel a little, like I have a little more energy. Like, are there some signs that overall health is in pretty good versus, you know what I mean? Well, energy yeah, for sure, mm-hmm. and, and sleep, sleep is definitely, sometimes it's not that we just need more sleep to feel better. Like you need the the chemistry to be correct for the sleep mm. to actually be good quality. So just being really um, mindful about um, observing your sleep, I guess, which kind of doesn't make sense. Yeah. How could we test that? Well, you can't really, you can do like a lot of people are wearing Fitbits and other, um, you know, motion tracker devices that listen to your snoring at night and all of those things. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a, it's a reference point, but it's not perfect. There are some companies where you can do at home, uh, sleep apnea tests. So it mm. tests your heart rate and your breathing at night. So you can do that, but otherwise the true way to really do a sleep assessment is you go to a sleep lab, which I think is, you know, can't be accurate because you're sleeping in a weird environment hooked up to all of these things <laughs> with strangers watching you. But mm-hmm. anyways, like if you have a sleep pathology, that's kind of the route that you do, but otherwise you just go based on, you know, um, what your partner says, basically how energetic <laughs> you feel the next day and things like that. So blood testing and yeah, maintaining good sleep. And then do you have any kind of, I don't want to say advice, but just like insight on exercise? Should that be modified? Should that, you did mention muscle mass. Um, um, yeah, it really depends on the individual. Some people mm. are just runners and runners running makes them happy. You know, mm-hmm. they're definitely pumping out all kinds of dopamine, dopamine when they run and that's just their happy place. And that's what they need to do. And their body loves it and they respond really well to it. And mm. other people running would be the worst thing that they can do. Their cortisol is just not in a position where they can support that kind of intense exercise and they need to go do more walking, which is very counterintuitive to people sometimes they, some people just don't respect walking as a movement form, I think. And I, I get that, but sometimes depending on the phase of life that they're in, they might temporarily have to do that. And they might have to let go of who they think they are. Like, oh no, I've always been a runner. I'm, I'm just going to run through this. And, and that's mm. kind of part of what's gotten them to the burnout phase that they're in. And they need to shift gears. They need to start walking, doing some strength training and uh, reapproaching the running when their body is able to do that. It's like a a, a treatment plan, like a recovery phase is very different than a maintenance plan. So mm. they might have to be okay with doing something that they don't identify with for a while um, in order to get back to what they really love to do. And wow. uh, yeah, any kind of movement I think is good, of course. You know, like I think that we are chained to our desks all the time, looking <laughs> at our computers and stuff. Some people are lucky enough not to, but most of us are are doing that. And I feel like myself, my own body, 
all the exercise I'm doing is only to get me to and like to balance me out from that, to unbend me from all of the sitting that I'm doing. Um, and one day, once my little kids grow up, I aspire <laughs> to be able to put in the extra hours to actually get more fit. So um, I really think that taking care of your tissues with foam rolling and with yoga and with scraping and all of that stuff is really great to do and very admirable. And I think all of us need to do it and many of us cannot prioritize that. So working towards that kind of thing would be the goal. It's my goal anyway. Yeah, I appreciate that because I think there is also like I'm in the fitness industry and there is sort of a little bit of a stigma there where we assume that what works for one works for the whole. Like it's like, there's a lot of language out there that is saying, you know, like you have to get your cardio, you have to get your strength, you have to get your endurance. Like but like what you just said there, if someone isn't feeling like supported in something like very cardiovascular, like cortisol's going off, that's definitely not supporting them. So I, yeah, I really appreciate that it's more seasons of life and then also just what works for the individual. It sounds so simple, but it's really not the language in the industry, I gotta say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And just that everything is, um, is temporary, you know? Mm. So even though somebody might be doing their, their best, um, work workouts ever, that's awesome. And it's working really great for them at that time. But Mm. over time, things are going to change. Like their diet's going to change or their digestive function or their hormones or their stress, like something's going to shift. And we tend to just lock ourselves into a pattern regardless Mm. of what else is going on. So just being mindful and being adaptable and being sensitive to your current circumstance and just really listening because maybe it doesn't feel good to run right now. You know, maybe Mm. you, you, your heart loves running, but maybe right now your knees don't love running or, you know, your traps, maybe you need Mm -hmm. to be upside down a little bit more. Who knows? Yeah. I love that. And my last uh, question here, you touched on it a little bit already. So let's talk about stress. So what role does stress play in maintaining our health? And I want to kind of stick with women in particular, if we can, and why in your experience does this present as so challenging like why is stress such a hard thing for us to manage well i think there's a there are a lot of stressors happening right now can you hear your little one that's okay walked away from the door um Yeah. So there are just a lot of stressors. You know, I really believe that we've spent many years of our evolution working and living in little villages, right? So there was a lot on the go. On the go. We weren't being lazy about it, but we were doing work close to home. We had no commutes. Um, we had other environmental stressors and other things like that, some of which are probably healthy for us, um, like exposure to more colds than we're doing now. Like I think our, our comfortable, warm, isolated lives are are very comfortable, but not necessarily super healthy for us. And now we are having to often drive to and from work and we have to deal with all of these noises that we haven't heard in the past. And, and those, I think those stimuli 
are difficult for our nervous systems to adapt to, right? Um, and a lot of other things like that, like job stress and deadlines. And then um, if you have children, then you have to get them up, get them to school, work your day, they're in daycare, and then you pick them up. Like there's just a lot crunched into the day and the sacrifice is usually sleep. And that's the thing you need the most to recover from it all. So I just think that it's a lot. I don't think that uh, a modern woman's body is particularly sensitive to stress. I just think there's a lot going on there. So the more that you can externally separate from, the better. So if you can curate a life that's reduced stress, that would be really great. But other than that, it's just kind of accepting that this is the circumstance that we're in and nourishing your body through the right foods and potentially uh, herbs and supplements to support that stress response would be, um, you know, maybe necessary depending on the person's life. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you've done yourself that's helped kind of alleviate stress or some little routines or some like tips there that you found maybe even working with? clients that is helpful to reduce stress? I really, so for my personal circumstance, it's that I can curate the best life, right? Like when you're mm. a clinician, my type of clinician, you can create the hours that you want to work. Um, so that's been the biggest thing for me because I have a tendency to work, 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 work. So <laughs> limiting myself in that way through my schedule is really helpful. Mm. Um, and exercise. I just think we're meant to exercise all the time. I just think that um, if people are stressed and aren't sleeping, they like the prescription is exercise. They just need to move their body more. And I do think for the most of us, we can physically tire ourselves out enough that sleeping comes for the most part. So my answer is exercise, I think. Mm. And what about anything like nature, meditation? Sure. Yes, all of those, all of those wonderful things. And some people, it's like listening to really loud music and um, <laughs> lifting weights at the same time. Like, who knows? Everybody's mm. different. So it's whatever creates that calm GABA brain space for them. But, um, but I think like the fundamental similarity between us all is that we need to be moving more than we're moving. Mm. Amazing. And actual last question, what is your definition of connection? This feels like a curveball question. It is. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that requires more reflection for the connection question. Um, I don't know. I want to answer it in so many different ways. I feel like by asking that, it implies like a, a social connection kind of thing. but because of the topic of our conversation, I can't help but answer that it's like connecting the dots, like uh, mm. connecting what the symptom and the root cause is and how this action that the person is taking is leading to this consequence and all of that. So connection is like figuring it out, like drawing out the spider web and figuring out what's really going on. Mm, I love that. And you do that really, really well. I always tell people after I have an appointment with you, it's like, you're like, okay, I'm going to pull up this study and I'm going to like, look at this. And you're like, okay, can I share my screen with you? And you're like drawing pictures and like, it's, it's amazing. And it's how your brain works. Right. And it's so, it's so needed. 
Yeah, I think I need to take an art course though to make that a little, uh, you know, a little bit better. (laughs) Only so many hours in a day. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Is there anything you want to close with? Anything you want to share with the listeners? Uh, No, I think that's all, but I'm going to just answer that last two questions ago one more time about movement. Jen, you can splice it in maybe, but how movement is so important for stress uh, coping Mm -hmm. um, because it's like the physical response we have of stress are all the things that we need to move, right? Our heart rate increases, our muscles tense, all of that. Mm. And so if we're in a situation where we just kind of have to sit and bear that tension and that biological response, it's not favorable and it's a negative. But if we can actually take that and produce the actions that we've been designed to do, then not only does it alleviate the negative part of that, but potentially it's a positive. Like, stress isn't an only a negative stress is really important for growth and so i think if we can think about stress as something to work with in some ways then it would be more positive both physically and mentally mm, i love that so let's say let's give an example here so say you're starting your day and you're like oh my gosh i'm stressed there's like so much that i have to do or there's you know you get some bad news whatever it is you're saying like move through that in your body. Like you could do like a 10 minute, like little stretch, or you could do some jumping jacks or like go for a walk, like anything. Yeah, definitely. Or you could be taking a work call while you're walking, you know, like if something's making you anxious, just like uh, walking, or I have some patients that see me on a treadmill, you know, like they're just like, Mm -hmm. they're just dissipating that tension that they have. Um, and they don't have time to fit it in anywhere else. They're just kind of doubling up. And I Mm. think that that works great for a lot of people. I love that. That actually does, that works really well for me. That's definitely my go-to, but I do want to caveat. I have a tendency to choose extremes. So it's like, I need to move. Like I got to go and like do like the heaviest hitting where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm recovering from a concussion injury right now. And that's really been like, okay, maybe it's, it's a little gentler, but it's still moving. It's still moving my body and it always helps and clears, but it's also like, okay, we're not, I just want to make it clear. Like we're not explicitly saying like, this has to be the craziest, hardest, most intense workout every time. You know what I mean? It can be very simple. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's amazing. And where can the listeners go to connect with you after the show? What's the best place to get in touch? Oh, I would say our website, so sequencewellness.com. And like mm-hmm. I said, that free ebook I'll put up there. And I just think it's good information that we should all have that we should have probably received when we were teenagers. So mm-hmm. I'll make sure that that's available so that people can cobble up that information. Amazing. Okay, well, this is awesome. This is great. Thank you so much for sharing. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Nice chatting with you. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Hey, bye, Rudy.